Good morning and welcome to Burning Hearts, a Bible study for atheists, agnostics, for unbelievers, for people of all faiths and for people of no faith. Now, I describe this story as a Bible study. So we'd start today with looking at the word Bible. The word Bible comes from two Greek words, ta biblia, meaning the books. So one of the first great truths that all of us need to know about the Bible is that it is not a book, it is a library of books. In the Bible you have all kinds of writing. You have prose, you have poetry, you have historical writing, you have wisdom literature, you have proverbs, you have songs, you have stories, you have all kinds of things. The actor Alec Guinness made the comment one time that he had gotten all of his education from the Bible. And I must say for myself that of all the books, the Bible has had the most profound influence on my life. I do have, besides the Bible, a classical education, but the Bible is the one that influences my daily life. So the Bible then is a library of books. And uh, going back to an earlier explanation, there, there is a one-line summary possible of the Bible, and that is that the, the Bible is the story of a broken marriage. Uh, God, the creator of the heavens and the, of the earth, chose the Jewish people and entered into a marriage with them. And if you read the Hebrew part of the Bible, God's relationship with the Jewish people, you will find that it is simply the story of a broken marriage. God is always faithful, and the people of God, the Jews, are continually unfaithful. They're continually worshipping the false gods. So the prophets who came to the Jews and confronted them with their infidelity towards God promised that there would be a new marriage. And the new marriage took place through Jesus. Jesus made a marriage between mankind and God. On the cross of Calvary, after a life of obedience, Jesus, with his dying breath, cried out, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And uh, so the Christian part of the Bible has to do with this new marriage. Now, we're going to study specifically the Gospel of St. Matthew. So let's say stop right there and say, what do you mean by the word gospel? The word gospel means the good news. So the gospel of St. Matthew is the good news according to a man named Matthew. We don't know much about who Matthew was. There are four gospel writers uh, in the Christian scriptures. Uh, their names are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was a nursery rhyme popular well over 300 years ago, and it goes something like this. And now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. There are four corners to my bed. There are four angels overhead. One to watch, one to pray, one to lead, two to lead my soul away. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless the bed that I lay on. Now, my first introduction to 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was when, as a child, I heard my mother say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, bless the bed that I lay on. I had no idea who these fellows were or what they did, but if you were to open your Bible, you'd find them in there. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four men who wrote the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about what Jesus did. By dying, he destroyed our death. By rising, he restored our life. And we look for him to come in glory. There are symbols attached to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The symbol attached to Matthew's gospel is the man, because Matthew traces the human origins of Jesus Christ. It opens with a rather apparently or seemingly dull genealogy. The symbol attached to Mark's gospel is the lion because he shows you Jesus as the new Moses, the lion of the tribe of Judah, a great healer, teacher, preacher, suffering Messiah. The symbol attached to Luke's gospel is the ox. Now the ox is a beast of burden and Luke, the physician, shows you Jesus carrying the burdens of the people, a compassionate Christ. And the symbol attached to John's Gospel is the eagle. It is said that the eagle of all the birds of the air looks into the brightness of the sun, and that John looked into the brightness of Jesus, the Word of God, uh, more so and in a deeper way than any of the others. So the symbol for Matthew is the man, the symbol of Mark is the lion, the symbol of Luke is the ox, and the symbol of John is the eagle. If you began your study of the Bible with the Gospel of Matthew, you may uh, be discouraged for all time. It opens with a genealogy that goes from verse 1 to verse 17. And um, just to give you a feeling of what it's like, I'll read the first few verses of Matthew's Gospel. A genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, Tamar being their mother. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminidad, Aminidad was the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salman, Salman was the father of Boaz, Rahab being his mother. Boaz was the father of Obed, Obed being his mother. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. Now, it goes on in that manner uh, for quite another 11 or 12 verses, and if it was the first thing that you ever read in the Bible, you may have been discouraged uh, for all times. So what's the purpose of a genealogy? Well, has this ever happened to you? Have you been invited to dinner to friends or acquaintances, and at some stage or other during the visit, uh, your hosts were to take out the family album and show you pictures of their children and their grandchildren, and perhaps uh, pictures of their own fathers and mothers and uncles and aunts and everything else, and you sat there uh, very polite and listen to this, but may have been bored out of your mind. Well, 
the pictures were very important to uh, somebody, and so they were sharing with you a little bit of their family history. Well, Matthew does the same then. He opens up his um, gospel with a long, long, long genealogy. And perhaps you noticed uh, or recognized some of the names in the genealogy, like, for instance, a genealogy of Jesus the Christ, uh, son of David, uh, son of Abraham. At least you might recognize David and Abraham. And in there was mention uh, Ruth. But, you know, who are the rest of these characters? People like Ram and Nashon and Jesse and Jacob and Perez. So it, um, well, these are the family history of Jesus the Christ. The genealogy of Matthew's Gospel opened, as you heard, with a genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. So the function of Matthew's genealogy is to trace Jesus' descent back to David and back to Abraham, the one whom Christians proclaim as Messiah, as Savior, can be correctly claimed to be the son of David. The Jesus, that Jesus the Christ came at the right time is suggested by the fact that there's a, a threefold sequence of 14 generations, like uh, Matthew traces uh, from Abraham to David, 14 generations, from David to the Babylonian exile, which was 14 generations, and from the Babylonian exile to Jesus the Christ with another 14 generations. Now you need to know in passing that the number seven is the perfect or golden number. If you remember, God rested on the seventh day. Um, so the 14, then the use of the number 14 is a clue that Jesus came at the right time. So the basic purpose then of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapters 1 verses 1 to 17 is clear. Jesus is the son of David and of Abraham, and was born at the right time in Israel's history. For the community that Matthew was a leader in, it served to root Jesus firmly within the history of God's people, something that was important both for Jewish and Gentile Christians. However, Matthew's Gospel has something very unusual in it. It includes five women. Now, these five women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and of course Mary. Now it's extraordinary, this completely breaks the pattern of all the other genealogies throughout the whole Bible. You'll find uh, genealogies in the book of Ruth and in the books of Chronicles, but none of them would include a woman. But here is Matthew, a first century uh, Jewish Christian a Jewish leader in the Christian community, apparently, and he's including five women. What's going on here? And five very strange women, if I may say so. Uh, Tamar, for instance, dressed up as a prostitute, and she had sex with her own father-in-law and conceived the child by him. Now, there's more to the story, but I can't get into it at this time. I think you'll find the details around um, in chapter 38 of the book of Genesis. And Rahab uh, was a Gentile, and um, she's mentioned in connection with the Jewish people 
uh, taking over the Holy Land, and she was a prostitute. And Ruth, another Gentile, uh, so um, we have here Jesus with Gentile blood in him. Ruth was a Moabite, and she married um, a man who was uh, together they were the father of Jesse who was the father of David so Ruth now brings more Gentile blood into uh, the genealogy of Jesus and Bathsheba was that famous woman who was taking a bath she was the wife of uh, another Gentile Uriah the Hittite she was taking a bath in a place where she could be seen and David the second king of Israel was consumed with lust for her and uh, had her husband killed and committed adultery with her. So we're confronted with something very strange here. Not alone do we have um, four women in the genealogy of Matthew, which was highly unusual, but this is preparing us uh, for the most unusual um, conclusion to the genealogy, that Jesus was born of a virgin so that no man could boast before God. This is how Jesus Christ came to be born. His mother Mary was betrothed, engaged to Joseph, but before they came to live together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a man of honor and wanting to spare her publicity, decided to divorce her informally. He had made up his mind to do this when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because she has conceived what is in her by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you must name him Jesus, because he is the one who is to save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill the words spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had told him to do. He took his wife to his home, and though she, he, had, he had not had intercourse with her, she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Now, uh, this is an extraordinary story, as you know, that it's proposed to us that God took flesh in the, in the womb of a virgin and walked among us. This woman, Mary, was a virgin and betrothed to or engaged to a man named Joseph. So they were already committed to marry. Now, in Luke's Gospel, we are given more of the details. We are told that a messenger of the Lord, an angel named Gabriel, um, appeared to Mary and invited her to be the mother of God. And she was deeply troubled, naturally enough, and she said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And it was a very good question to ask. I mean, really, you know, the, the whole mystery of it all. She's a virgin, and yet she is to give birth to um, the Son of God. And, of course, there's another question in there as well. Can a man be the father of God? So Mary's question, how can this be, since I am a virgin? 
And um, the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Hence the holy offspring to be born will be called Son of God. In other words, it would take a miracle. God's own spirit would have to impregnate Mary so that she could give birth to the Son of God. Uh, we refer to God as a trinity. Uh, we refer to God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't propose for a minute to be able to uh, grasp or explain how God is, how there is one God and three persons in God, but this is how God has revealed himself to us. You can even see uh, an allusion to this in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, journey with me mentally for a moment back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we're introduced to the creator God, who is the Father. And that, in a way, is that concept, anyway, is not foreign to us because we all have human fathers and we ourselves are inclined to make things. We make bread, we make beer, we make houses, we make cars. And uh, so, since we are made in the image and likeness of God, um, we, we too are, if you like, uh, sharers in creation. Now, we don't create things out of nothing, but Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 introduces us to someone like ourselves, someone who builds and creates. So, in the beginning, God the Father created the heavens and the earth, and we're told that the earth was a wasteland. It was, there was much confusion and chaos. There was darkness upon the face of the deep. And then it says, the Spirit of God moved over the darkness. And here a little distinction seems to be drawn between God created everything, but then his Spirit moved over the darkness. And then we're introduced to the third person of God, the Word of God. God said, let there be light, and the light was made. Now, can you see that allusion to the Trinity right there in the opening lines of the Bible? The Father created everything in the beginning, but everything was a wasteland, and there was darkness upon the, the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved over the darkness, and God said, God said the word, and separated the light from the darkness. Well, the same seems to be happening here when we're told the story of the virginal conception of Christ, uh, the darkness had come back into the world again through sin. Uh, sin abounded every place. Um, we had stories earlier on of the time of Noah, when God looked down upon the face of the earth and he regretted having made man because the thoughts in man's heart fashioned nothing but wickedness all day long. And if you remember the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the darkness had come back again, the darkness of sin. Now, at the fullness of time again, God the Father, um, there's going to be a new creation. So Mary, like you, like myself, is a child of the all-holy God. But there's sin in the world. And now, for the sin to, to uh, be banished, 
the spirit has to come out again. And this time the spirit moves not over the darkness of the waters in Genesis, but the spirit moves over Mary, and she conceives the word of God. The word that spoke in the very beginning now takes flesh uh, in the womb of Mary, and when the fullness of time had come, the word was, took flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. We touched him. Not alone did we touch him, but we nailed him to a tree. Now we, poor Joseph comes into this scene. Joseph is engaged to this woman called Mary, and you can imagine the, the utter shock, uh, the utter disappointment, the horror, in a way, when he hears that his wife-to-be, his beloved, his betrothed, is with child. He must have gone through a tremendous agony, uh, much nightmares, and this is alluded to by the fact that it says Joseph uh, was deciding to divorce Mary quietly, um, which meant that he was not exposing her to the full rigors of the law. At the time of uh, Jesus, engagement had the same binding force as marriage. So it appears here that Mary has committed adultery, and the punishment for adultery is stoning to death. Now, Joseph doesn't wish to expose Mary to the full rigors of the law. Um, he decided to divorce her quietly. But then, um, in a dream, God spoke to Joseph uh, through the Holy Spirit and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because she has conceived what is in her by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you must name him Jesus, because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill the words spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. So there were several miracles going on here at this time. The miracle of uh, the word of God, who was with God from the very beginning, taking flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the same Spirit uh, convincing Joseph that this miracle was true. The same goes for ourselves. We too need uh, the Holy Spirit to open up our minds and hearts and souls if we are to believe the great mysteries of our faith, one being that God in actual fact took flesh from the Virgin Mary, that he walked among us, that he cried, that he eat, that he slept, that he lived, that he died. Uh, we have to believe other great miracles too. Later on uh, in his history, Jesus will say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot have life in you. And how can a man uh, give us his flesh to eat? And of course, this miracle was cleared up for us to some extent at the Last Supper when Jesus took bread and said, take this all of you and eat it, for this is my body. He changes body, he changes bread into his own body, he changes wine into his own blood. At Holy Mass, this miracle takes place in much the same way as the miracle of Mary conceiving Jesus uh, took place. If you remember Mary saying, how can I 
conceive of God. And he says, the Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Hence, the holy offspring to be born will be called Son of God. Well, how does the bread become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? By the same Holy Spirit. If you ever attend a Catholic Mass, you will see at one stage the priest stretching his hands over the bread and wine and says, let your spirit come upon these gifts so they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes a miracle. And indeed, it's going to take a miracle for all of us to become what God wants us to become. Every one of us has been called on to be holy. Did you know that? Did you know, for instance, before the universe was created, you were chosen by God to be holy, to be full of love, to be blameless in his sight? Now, that's an astounding thing here, if anybody takes it seriously. God has called you and I to be holy in his sight, to be full of love. And I say, immediately say to God, how is this possible? I'm a sinner. I have the blood of Adam in my veins. And what I hear is the same message that uh, Mary heard and the same miracle that takes place at every Mass. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God will overshadow you. Hence, I will become holy in this manner if only I would desire it so. So chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel introduces us to an extraordinary truth that a woman, Mary, is the mother of God, the mother of Jesus, the Christ. Not long ago, a Protestant friend of mine who had spent most of his adult life committed to the Lord's service as a minister, a Protestant minister, asked me about the Catholic's glorification of Mary. Were not some of us overdoing it? The best answer I've ever heard on the subject of glorifying Mary came from Scott Hahn, a former Presbyterian minister on the faculty of a Presbyterian seminary. He is a convert to Catholicism whose journey from anti-Catholicism to his new belief was so painful that when he now defends Catholicism, he does so with compassion and deep understanding, especially when challenged by some of his former brother clergy. Scott, they say, we can see how you could defend the sacraments of the Catholic Church, and we can even see how you might be able to defend the papacy. But how can you possibly defend the Catholic's glorification of Mary? There are crowning services and pictures of Mary everywhere and statues of her all over the place. There's no way you can defend that biblically. And with your biblical knowledge and background, how could you possibly swallow that one? Instead of answering right away, he asks them a question. Was Jesus an Orthodox Jew? Well, of course he was. And as an Orthodox Jew, would he have obeyed the commandments? Obviously, they say. Scott rephrases the question. There's no possibility that, as an Orthodox Jew, Jesus would have disobeyed the commandments. No. Why do you ask? He would have honored his father and mother. Yes, of course. Well, he says with a smile, in Hebrew, the word honor is glorify. So he must not only have glorified his father, but if he was a true Hebrew, he would have had to glorify his mother as well. So how can the Catholic Church be wrong in imitating Christ? 
And so I told my Protestant friend, the Church does give glory to Mary because she was the new Eve who said yes to God. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. My name is Father Patrick J. O'Doherty. Shalom.